0: So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I briefly introduced you to the ancient Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish. There we encounter a more violent creation story in which one god, Marduk, conquered and killed the goddess Tiamat, a dragon. This is Marduk and Tiamat. Marduk then cut Tiamat in half, and with half of her body he made the skies, and with half he made the land. This was in stark contrast to Genesis chapter 1 where there is no violence and God simply creates or gives order and function and purpose to all of the created order. And he does it out of his good and beautiful character and will. I said then that these alternative creation stories are important to us because it is up against them that we gain an understanding of how our God, whose name is Yahweh, is different than all of the other gods. And out of this we find identity and purpose as God's people. If we dive a little further into the story, after Marduk killed Tiamat, He went after her partner in crime, Kingu. Kingu, who is also a dragon-serpent kind of creature, a god. Kingu is then bound up by the other gods, killed, and his blood was taken and used to make humankind. Oh, This is a PG-13 sermon. Likewise, another ancient Babylonian myth, Atrahasis, portrays the creation of humanity from the clay and the blood of a god and then the spit of other gods disgusting, no? So keep this story in mind as we walk through our passage today. The second account of creation begins in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. The author wants us to know that there are four problems that need to be addressed. There are no shrubs, there are no plants, because there is no water on earth and because there is no one to work the earth and to care for the garden. So God gets to work solving these problems in verse 6 of Genesis 2. But streams came up from the earth, or land, remember it can mean that too, and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Before plants and shrubs can grow in this cosmology, two additional things are necessary, water and human beings. So God provides water from the streams that come up from under the earth to water the whole surface of the ground. This taps back into that ancient cosmology that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where the waters are above the land and the sky, the sky dome and the waters below. It looks like this. And then God forms a human being, a man from the dust of the ground. No no blood, no spit, no violence of any kind. God does not require that. God just formed the man from the dirt as a potter shapes the clay. Once again, this description, this simple description of how God formed the man stands against the way any of the other ancient stories tried to portray the creation of humans. Then God breathed into the man the breath of life. The word breath, some of you may know, the Hebrew word is ruach. It can be translated as wind or breath or spirit. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 when the spirit of God, the ruach of God, hovers over the surface of the deep like a mother hen or an eagle over its nest. The Hebrew word for human is adam, Adam, Adam comes from the adama, which is the ground. It's not all that different in English when humans come from the humus, not hummus, that's an entirely different thing, but humus. Adam comes from the adama. humans come from the humus. Later, the word Adam is turned into a proper name, Adam. So now that God has solved the first two problems, the need for water, the need for someone to cultivate the land, God moves on to the next challenge, The plant life. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So I want us to take a minute here, and I want us to review things. We are on the land, which in their minds is uh, like an island sitting on the waters below, not a ball of rock spinning in space the way we think of it. We are in a region of that land in the east. <clears throat> the region is called Eden, a word that means delight or abundance. And in this region of Eden, there is, God has placed a garden. This garden is where all kinds of trees can now grow because there is water and there is a human being to care for them. And then we're taken further into the garden, last part of verse 9. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If, if we were to diagram, very simply diagram this geography of Eden, it might look a bit like this. There is the land, there is the region of Eden in the land in the east, there is the garden of Eden, and in the middle of the garden there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's keep this geography, this topography of the garden of Eden in the the back of our minds for a few minutes and we'll, we'll come back to it. I've also included this, uh, this diagram in the Bible app live event. Then in the next section, verses 10 through 14, just the, uh, we are to, told about a river that flows out of the Garden of Eden and then it gets to a certain place and it splits into four rivers that take water to the rest of the land, the rest of the earth. And We're going to save them from another day. There, there's meaning in that that we could talk about, but uh, we're going to move on to the next paragraph in the interest of time. Verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. All the problems mentioned in the first few verses have been solved. There is water. There is someone to care for the garden. There are plants, there are shrubs, there are all kinds of trees in the garden. These trees, in turn, produce food for the man. It's a well-running biosphere. Everything he or they are ever going to need, what could possibly go wrong? God has now provided for the man and given him the run of the place. With one exception, he must not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you have questions about the nature of this garden, if you have questions about who Adam and Eve were and how that worked, if you have questions about the fruit on the tree and all of that, those are interesting questions. But if you focus on that and that alone, you and you get lost in that, you will miss the point of why these stories are included in scripture. And trust me, they only get weirder from this point on. But then God takes note of another problem, the man is alone. So first God forms the animals and he brings them to the man and he gives the, the man freedom to name the animals and whatever he names them, they are called that. But there's nothing among the animals that is suitable, a suitable helper for the man. So then, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The suitable helper for the man is woman. This word helper, however, does not mean servant. It does not mean less than. the same word is used several times throughout the Hebrew scriptures to refer to God's relationship with Israel. So, for example, Psalm 33, verse 20, the psalmist proclaims, where is it? Psalm thirty-three, twenty. 20, thank you. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our help. That word help is the same root word that is used of the woman back in Genesis as a helper to the man. As God helps Israel, so the woman helps the man. In fact, the only time we get this language that seems to indicate that the woman will be less than the man is after the two of them have messed things up and disobeyed God in the next chapter. In Genesis three sixteen. God says to the woman, now called Eve, as a result of their disobedience, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Their disobedience disrupted their relationships with God, their relationships with one another, their relationships with creation and things became dysfunctional, to say the least. You see, God is not laying down a commandment that the man is supposed to rule over the woman. God is naming the reality. To turn away from God, to think we know a better way, and to go in that direction, to reach out and take whatever it is we want, only leads to conflict and brokenness. To turn away from God, to think we know a better way, To reach out and take whatever we want only leads to brokenness and conflict and dysfunction. That will begin with Adam and Eve, then it will spiral outward and downward to their descendants. But here, at the beginning, it was not so. For now, though it will not last long, there is harmony in the Garden of Eden. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Or as we've said in the South growing up, naked. And they felt no shame. This is the summary of this good place, this good relationship, these good people God has created. This, this is the harmony of life with God, life with others, life with creation as God intended and intends to To the Hebrew mind, the Garden of Eden was a place of shalom, a Hebrew word that means peace and well-being and prosperity. means that everything is just the way it's supposed to be. And here's the mistake we make. It wasn't perfect. At least not the way we think of perfect. It wasn't perfect the way we think of perfect. It was perfect in the sense that it came with everything they needed, And that it also came with freedom for the man and the woman and all of us to choose to go another way other than what God desires. Many of us think of perfect. We think, well, that could never happen in some situations perfect. Part of perfection, as God sees it, is that we have the freedom. And as we will see in next week's passage, that's exactly what they do. For now, however, I want us to see something important that is going on in this passage that we might not notice until we got a little further along in the Old Testament, in the Torah. God has created this space that will be mirrored if mostly if only mostly symbolically he's created this space that will be mirrored in the blueprint of the tabernacle and later the temple What we read here in Genesis 2 then is hyperlinked to what we read in Exodus chapters 24 to 27. There Moses will go up on a mountain and he will meet with God and God will show him a pattern, a pattern by which he's to construct the tabernacle. There God says to Moses in Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, the people of God, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is God, once again, wanting to dwell with His people and with His creation. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we talked about when we talked about the birth of Christ. God wants to be with us in the garden. God wants to be with us in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Christ, and now in the church. The pattern God will show Moses is modeled on the Garden of Eden and like a hyperlink on a web page, if we click on Exodus 25, verse 9, it opens a window to Genesis chapter 2. Now, let's go back to that diagram that I showed you earlier. The outer environment is the land. Further up in is a region of that land called Eden. To the east in that region in Eden is a garden, and in the middle of that garden are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Later in Scripture, Ezekiel 28, for example... The garden will be portrayed as being on top of a mountain. For in ancient cosmology, heaven, God's dwelling place, was up above the dome of the skies. So to be on a mountaintop is to be closer to God. Eden is where God and humanity dwelt together. God with us, Emmanuel. This tabernacle will now be for the people of God like an embassy in a foreign land. When we lived, Kim and I lived in the Netherlands, we were on Dutch soil until we needed to go to the U.S. Embassy to renew our passports. Magically, when you walk through the gates, you're on U.S. soil, legally speaking. We were in two places at once. We were in the United States and in the Netherlands at once. This is how the Garden of Eden functioned. Heaven on earth, we might say. Eden was on earth, but it was also in the heavens where God dwelt. And this is how God has designed the tabernacle. When ancient Israel stood in the tabernacle, especially when the priests went into the the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, they were standing on the soil of the kingdom of heaven and on the soil of the earth. If we took these concentric ovals like this, and we turn them into a rectangle. What do we see? I had to turn it on its side to help you a little bit. We have a diagram of the tabernacle, later the temple. The, the land upon the waters is the outer courts of the tabernacle. The next, uh, which is the court of the Gentiles, the next rectangle moving inward is the region of Eden, or in the tabernacle, the court of Israel. And then, in the blueprint, the garden of Eden becomes the holy place, or the middle of the garden where the two trees stand, becomes the Holy of Holies, and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. There are more things in other texts as we go that will demonstrate that the tabernacle is clearly modeled after Eden. We will get to that as we get to that, but this is enough for today. But how does this imagery, this passage, this portrayal of this sacred harmonic space where God and humans dwell together, how does this lead us to Jesus? Where in this account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where does the Holy Spirit point us to Jesus? Because that's what we're asking as we go through these passages. Early on in our journey through John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus, as we say, cleanses the temple. He goes into the temple, he flips over the tables, he drives the animals out of the temple. Then the religious authorities want to know, what gives him the right to make such a mess? What sign can you give us, they asked, to prove that you have the authority to do these things?" And Jesus responds by saying something strange that doesn't sound like he's answering the question. Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days." And they replied, "It has taken They replied, "It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days." But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see what's happening here. In the beginning, God created a place on earth called Eden, a sacred place where heaven and earth overlapped. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, as we will see, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Much later, God instructs the people of Israel through Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent by which God will dwell with them and go with them. That tabernacle, and even later the temple itself, is patterned after the Garden of Eden. It is laid out in the same way. Why? To enable God's people and eventually all of us to dwell in relationship with God once again. But we're not done. The story has gone from the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, and now in John 2, to Jesus telling us that he is the temple who will be destroyed and rebuilt, raised again in three days' time. Jesus, who is totally human and totally divine, is now that sacred place where God dwells with humanity. We are told in John 1, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word took on flesh and blood and made his Dwelling, literally, his tabernacle among us. I have two more places I want us to go. So that we can see the glory of what God is doing in in sweeping fashion. From the opening pages of scripture right down through both the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the way to Jesus and beyond. So I shared this with you. It wasn't in, I hadn't planned to say it. I couldn't help myself. I blurted it out on Easter. Easter. I just couldn't wait, so I want to go a little deeper into this. But when Jesus is on the cross in Luke 23, he is crucified between two criminals who are also being crucified, and one of them hurls insults at him, but the other one turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him in verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now why didn't Jesus just say, today... You will be with me in heaven. I mean, that's what we're used to. That's what we expect him to say. That's what we were taught. But maybe we should let go of that for a bit. Maybe there's something else going on that's deeper. The word paradise comes down to us from a Persian word. It's a loan word. It comes to us very close to what it was originally. Modified a bit when it got into Greek came through Latin, then French, then to us. But it's still very close to the same word. And the word itself means an enclosed park, a garden. Paradise is a garden. And in case I'm not convincing you of this, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is called the Septuagint, the word paradise replaces or stands in for the word garden in Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a paradise in eden so no jesus does not say today you will be with me in heaven he says today you will be with me in the garden of eden this is way cool i don't know if you know it but it is way cool three in the morning you're going to wake up it's going to blow your mind Jesus is not getting us ready and fit as disembodied spirits to sit on clouds and play the harp. Thank God. I can't imagine anything more boring. He is getting us ready to go back to where we were at the beginning. The Garden of Eden where God and humanity dwell together. But I'm not done yet. Or rather, Scripture's not done yet. 1 John 4.17 After telling us that because of God's great love he sent his one and only son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for his sins John goes on to tell us that we are now called upon to live in love with one another and then he has yet one more surprise for us 1 John 4.17 This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus. Now that can mean a lot of things, I suppose, but whatever else it means, it does not mean anything less than the reality that we, plural, we, collective, we, the people of God, are now the place, the sacred place where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth become one. We, not as individuals, But we, as the body of Christ, the church, we are like Jesus in the world. We are God's temple, God's tabernacle. We are the Garden of Eden. And in us and through us, God is taking all things back to the way they were in the beginning. And it is in this way that we live into our ECC touchstone of presence, where we are commissioned as agents of change and redemption in community with one another and in the world and when we are abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in us we bear fruit for the kingdom of God in the world the way God does this of course is by transforming us he makes us new when we come to faith in Christ and when we come to one another and learn to love one another we plural the body of Christ we are are the place where heaven and earth meet. We are the Garden of Eden. We are like Jesus in the world. I think, however, that you will note, as I have, that we are not doing this very well these days. And by we, I mean the larger church. We, like our world and our nation, are divided. And when we are politicized and divided, we do not bear witness to the overlap of heaven and earth in our midst. This way we are an awful lot like Adam and Eve who thought they knew a better way, but that way led to brokenness and dysfunction. But what God wants to remind us of is that this was not so in the beginning. This was not so in the beginning. In the beginning, and at several points along the way, God has always sought to dwell among us, and now he seeks to dwell among us and in our world, in and through us. What God wants us to know is that what was true of Eden is also true of us. So much so that we can legitimately change the title of the sermon. In the geography, the topography of creation is God intended. Eden is heaven, and so are we. I don't mean heaven, again, sitting on clouds, strumming on harps. I mean a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with us and in us, Emmanuel. We are the temple of God. We carry with us the very nature of God. We are like Jesus in the world. It is what God wants for us. It is what Jesus died and rose again to bring into existence in us and through us into the world, and it is true of you. You can share in this if you have come to know Christ. But it shines out of us more and more as the image of Christ within us is renewed and restored, as we are transformed and ever-transforming. This is our calling. This is our destiny So where are you on that path? Where are you on that journey? Where are you in your relationship with God? How do you how do you view, view the church? Big church, large church. What do you, what do I, what do we need to do in order to more intensely yield ourselves to that destiny? to that journey, to that calling, to become more and more that place where heaven and earth meet, where we can together, because that's the way God does things, be like Jesus in the world. What do you need to do? I don't know what you need to do. It could be different from all of us. I'll tell you what I need to do every day. There's a lot of things. I'm going to tell you one thing because it came to mind. What I need to do every day, every day, If I sense God saying something to me, particularly something that makes me uncomfortable, something I need to do, someone I need to talk to, I do it on a good day. I have to do it. If I don't do it, my heart gets a little harder. And in this way and in other ways, this is how God continues to transform me. Every time we yield to the prompting of the Spirit, we get better at hearing the Spirit. Here's the question I have for you. I cannot speak to the larger church. You're my people. You're my people. And so what I want to say to you is this. Are we up for the challenge? Are we up? Are each of you as households, as individuals, up for the challenge of yielding yourself, your life, all of you, more and more to this calling, this destiny, this purpose of becoming the place in Lafayette, Indiana, where heaven and earth meet. Are you? I think you are. I can't speak for other churches. I think you are. I think God has brought us to a place. I have never had as much fun being a pastor as I have in this last year. And I think we're ready. I think you're ready. So what I want for you to do is simply ask God this week, what is it? What is the one, this isn't, a cond- I'm not saying you're not saved, I'm not saying you're not forgiven, I'm saying there's more. And I want you to know it. I want you to experience it. I want us to experience it. I want us to become the Garden of Eden in this place where heaven and earth meet. This is what God has in mind for us and for all the Church. And Because God is incredibly patient, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. I want to see it happen in us, and I want to see it happen in other congregations in our city, but let's start with us. Let's yield ourselves, whatever the Spirit might ask of you, to move in that direction. Would you pray with me? God, I give you thanks for these scriptures that have been preserved for us, that we might better know what you are doing in the world, what you are doing in and through Jesus, what you are doing in and through us. And I pray, God, for each of us, wherever we are in our relationships with you, God, I pray that you would move and come and do something in us that is above and beyond what we ever imagined possible. Make of us, Lord God, your people, your Garden of Eden, join us with other congregations that we could together display the beauty and the wonder of heaven on earth in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with you, and in how we love our enemies. Come, Lord Jesus, and do these things.